Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time yet again. Broadcasting almost live from a secure closet in the old Enron building, it's Tavern Voices. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is our other host and my holiday party Uber partner, Tyler Crawley. How's it going, man? Okay, I was, I was waiting for like the the greeting instead of just you know just passing it off to me. So that's why I paused there. Well, that was my uh, experiment. Is I was going to see <laughs> if you just would know you were supposed to come in, or if you were going to wait for it. Yeah, well, so. I, I, I like the greeting. I like the uh, like we haven't talked before we started recording this, even though everyone knows everyone does that, but it's the formality of it. So I'm good. I'm good. Kevin, yourself. I, you know, I am doing well and I, I like the formality because it's like I have now invited you into the podcast, right? That's it's, true. You're, yeah. you're not just barging in like Kramer on Seinfeld. I've actually Which, asked it's you. It's not bad. It's not a bad idea. Maybe that's next the, week you can just bust right in. Coy, Coy guy style. That's, that's the second 90s reference for the show. We're only like two minutes in. So we got Enron. We got Seinfeld. We got to go over the trifecta. You got to somehow mention the Chicago Bulls at some point for the the uh, pop culture trifecta here on this week's uh, podcast. I will try my best. I will I will try to make it organic, though. I don't want to force it. Okay. It's got to just happen. Okay. So you can't just say Chicago Bulls. You got to find a way to work it in. So that's your goal for two days. Find a way to get it in. And speaking of getting things in, wow, oh, this is like a really bad transition to what my first story is going to be. We're talking, we're talking the uh, migrant caravan, by the way. We're not going to like go into like some uh, crazy, horrible story about Playboy or Hustler magazine. All right. So Mexican authorities sought to reestablish order Monday morning after the chaotic day before that we all aware of tear gas being shot, all the craziness. Uh, and so nine busloads of Mexican federal police took up positions around the Tijuana sports complex where more than 5,000 migrants are camping out uh, with many waiting for the chance to apply for asylum in the United States. Tijuana police said that 39 migrants have been arrested for participating in unrest and causing disturbances. And if you've seen the videos, that means throwing rocks and climbing the fence and other kind of craziness. And so more than half of them are Hondurans including five women, which is interesting because the press keeps telling us that, you know, women can't do any you know, wrong. And so if you see a woman, then she's automatically a good person that needs to be let in the country. Five of them are going to get deported. Police said, uh, like I said, that they will be deported. Um, and so, Kevin, my question is, D.C. is once again facing a shutdown with regards to spending and Trump as usual, is asking for wall funding. And I can't help but think that with the pictures of the migrants scaling the wall, throwing rocks, just all out melee, is now, if he can't get wall funding now, it's never going to happen. What's your take on that? I thought that he was still asking Mexico to pay for it. Did I miss something? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they're they coming here to give us the money to pay for the wall. Maybe that's, maybe that's, that's what the <laughs> oh, okay. Now I know why they're, but was, was DHL too expensive? Yeah, they well, they yeah. had to send thousands of migrants. Um, it's, it's a strange situ- situation, you know, for, for sure. I think that he probably will get the wall funding. I've heard a lot of, um, senators and congressmen talking about wall funding in the migrant caravan, on and off for the last couple of weeks. So I do think that there are enough people up there other than Trump who are going to be advocating for doing something about the caravan, but whether or not, I mean, at this point with how much money we're spending, what does it matter? Go ahead and throw a couple of billion at the wall. Do we have a price tag on it? 
Well, I mean, it depends who you talk to. Anywhere from five to twenty billion, I believe, is the the amount it's going to cost to build it. That's chump change. We're running a trillion dollar deficit. <laughs> <laughs> they could build the nicest, the, the the nicest, hugest wall that we've ever seen for for just pennies of what our uh, interest rate is going to be on all the debt we're taking on. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really funny how you know both sides do this. You know, when we're talking about, for example, increasing, what would you call it? Like social security, you know, the cost of living adjustment or Medicare cost of living adjustment. And we're talking about, in most cases, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars increasing uh, to the cost. That's no big deal. But when someone gets caught buying lobster at Walmart with like food stamps, it's like, oh my gosh, we could be saving that money. <laughs> and both sides do this. Uh, the left likes to do this. So all of a sudden, $20 billion is just too much. We can't build a book. $20 billion? Think of where the money could go to. Then they want to ask for Medicare for all, which I'm pretty sure by every account costs about $3 trillion a year. And so it's just it's really funny how we're getting to the point now where like $20 billion is no big deal. But that just goes to show you how insane it is. But both sides love to play this game. Like Democrats, they're never going to give you $20 billion. Meanwhile, they're advocating for a $3 trillion uh, uh, Medicare overhaul, which it's like if we don't have $20 billion for the wall, which would probably fund about five hours of Medicare for all, I don't <laughs> think we have the money for the whole program. No, you're, you're right. And I want to get your maybe 30-second answer on this because I feel like we're very similar in the immigration debate. We're not crazy one way or the other. What do you think the happy medium is on the caravan? I mean, do you think it is just a big political thing? It's a big, um, you know, just something to rile up the base as before the election? Do you think it's an, a serious concern? Do you think that immigration as a whole, I know you've talked about really immigration uh, numbers have gone down over the last several years, and we're deporting fewer people than Obama did. So what do you think is the realistic play for play on this? All the above. <laughs> and that's, that's, I did it in three seconds. Look at that. I did, actually, I did it less than one. Um, no, I mean, I think when it comes to you know immigration is that there are some good points that, I, that I've heard being made, which is you don't – like those numbers are dropping, but they're, they're going back up. Because so what happened was, is that Trump took over and everyone assumed, especially in Central America, that this is it. Like, you know, it was it was, you know, this draconian leader was taking over the United States and was going to basically shut the border down. And then after about a year, people realized that Trump really hadn't done anything. And so it, it's it slowly started going back up. And then this caravan, this is a big this is a very tricky issue because here you have people who are seeking asylum. You have people that are true. I mean, they clearly are looking for a better life. I mean, some of them probably are horrible people, but I would say for the most part, a lot of them, I mean, let's face it, who would want to live in Honduras or any of these other countries where they're escaping from and the, and the, and the way they got here? I mean, it's, it's just like clearly they want to come to the United States, but you cannot reward bad behavior. And if we reward it and say we're going to let everybody in, no questions asked, then what's going to stop the next caravan and the next caravan? And so – the one thing we need to be very wary of is the reason that immigration levels dropped off is when Trump took office is because of sort of the messaging of Trump was he looked like being sort of anti-immigration. And so the, you know, the numbers dropped. And so perception is very important. And so if the perception is we just let these people into the country, no questions asked, we're going to see more of it. I mean, we all know that's how things are, right? When, when people find out that, hey, we're just going to let people in or we're going to do this, you encourage that behavior instead of punishing it. So I think we need to look at a case-by-case -case basis. 
the people that do deserve asylum need to be let in, but the ones that don't, we can't. And we need to let everyone know that we are being very tough, very strict, and nothing has changed. It's not any easier to get asylum than it ever has been because we do not want to encourage this type of you know influx of migration because we're, no matter where you fall on the issue, it's not a good thing to have five, 6,000 people rushing the border uh, trying to come into the country. We need, we have a process. We have legal immigration process. People need to use that process. Yeah. So once again, you gave a two minute answer. I said 30 <laughs> seconds, Tyler. Dude, you can't, come on. You can't answer. I mean, come on. It's not a debate. <laughs> it's not, not running for office. In 30 seconds, explain how you're going to fix everything in Washington. Okay. <laughs> so I did the best I could. It was, it was only a five minute answer and I, I shrunk it down to, to two minutes. That's quite the answer, but I'll take it. I will take that answer. And I think we should continue our harsh treatment of President Trump because this is a pretty big story, Tyler. I think in an effort to show how much President Trump and NAFTA 2.0 has been winning, GM announced today that is laying off up to 14,000 North American employees, 3,600 of which could be right here in the United States, uh, another several thousand in Canada and Mexico. This comes as they are shutting down production of cars such as the Chevy Volt and Chevy Cruze to produce their more profitable truck and SUV models. In all, they are looking to save about $6 billion in cash by the end of next year. They have also offered 18,000 retirement-eligible employees buyouts to help their pension-heavy roster. That alone would be about $3 billion in penalties of early payments on pensions. Tyler, since the U.S. bailed out GM once, Shouldn't we just do it again and save all these jobs? Ah, moral hazard. Ah, nothing Wall Street loves more than that. I mean, that's a good point. And this is one of the reasons why Trump, he's come out very aggressively on this. I mean, he's used some very harsh language. I'm trying to find the quote. Uh, oh, here it is. This is from the Wall Street Journal earlier today. President Trump uh, uh, said, quote, they better damn well open a new plant there very quickly. He said in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, I think talking about the plant in Ohio, and, you know, Trump's economic arguments are horrendous. Uh, they're awful. There was a great piece not too long ago in The New York Times about how Donald Trump's ideas uh, were sort of forged in the 1980s. Uh, most of his rhetoric at the time directed at Japan, and then he slowly sort of shifted to China. And, you know, you would think that due to the fact that Japan didn't take over the world like everyone thought, and in fact, their economy hasn't grown in 20 years, that he would have been like, oh, wow, maybe a mercantilist system – is not the way to go, but he still believes that, you know, you know, trade deficits are a horrible thing and everything else. And we're now hearing that he is going to move forward with Chinese tariffs and that nothing is going to stop him. But there's another there's another interesting component of Trump here. And that is today, GM stock is up 5%. I mean, most of the market's up. I think the market closed about up 300, somewhere around there. So things, you know, are good on, 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 on Wall Street. But GM was up 5%, even though they announced this horrendous news. Now, why is that? Well, it's very simple. It's because they essentially made a decision that was going to be beneficial to the company's bottom line. And this is this this is the problem with Trump's populism. And I'm not blaming Trump. I mean, I'm blaming just this sort of bizarro populism that he and some other Republicans have found themselves in where they love Wall Street and they love look how great the stock market's doing. But that's not an indicator that things are good on Main Street. Um, I mean, if you want to see like true populism, you look at someone like Bernie Sanders, who constantly criticizes Wall Street and says they're getting rich at the expense of of the worker. That's not true, but at least that's populism. And so, yeah, so Trump's going to bash GM and he's going to bash everything. But 
I mean, Donald Trump gave GM a huge tax cut. <laughs> he gave corporations big tax cuts because he wants to increase um, uh, uh, supply, supply side economics. I mean, this is what conservatives and Republicans believe. We don't believe in the stupid arguments that Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama's and others make about demand side economics. That's that's far more uh, inflationary and causes much bigger problems in the economy. But we believe in supply side. And this is a supply side sort of situation in that these cards aren't selling. And so what they're doing is they're shuttering these plants and they're going to figure out what to do. But it's also a very good reason why the government shouldn't get involved and let them do what they're going to do. Or they can double down but actually be populist. But Trump needs to make a decision. He's either going to be a populist or he's going to be a capitalist. But you can't be both. And this is what drives me crazy about a lot of Trump supporters is that they want both. They want a free market, but they also want this whole tariff idea. You can't have both. And you know, I disagree with tariffs. I disagree with populism. But if you're going to do it, do it. And what you're seeing right now is this sort of hybrid, and it confuses a lot of people. And so I think Trump's going to have to either say, hey, you know what, I'm with GM or I'm with GM's workers. Um, not to say that those two are mutually exclusive, but populists think that they are. And so he's going to have to decide. And so I guess we're going to find out if he's going to go full on populist or Stick with his stick with capitalism. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah, I mean, I think that you hit on several good points because that's what I wanted to bring up is the fact that this is this is capitalism working. No one is buying these cars. And in fact, I think it even I would go as far as to say this is sort of um, pushing back against the whole Obama presidency of pushing for these electric cars through government subsidies and um, you know how they were wanting to, to tax the coal industry more to get people off of fossil fuels and and just really this drive towards the electric vehicle thing and it just hasn't taken off I mean you look at the adoption of things I mean even if you're if you want to talk about a Tesla or high-end models or even just a Prius the Chevy Volt uh, so many of these hybrid uh, and all-electric vehicles just aren't what people want and they're not needed mostly because you have to build the infrastructure around it it's it's a slow transition you can't force people to adopt a completely different type of vehicle in in a five or ten year period it has to evolve and that's I think one of the big problems that we see when people advocate for government interference in a in a particular sector is they won't change now. They don't want to let it, whether it be net neutrality or whatever, they don't want to let it play out. And capitalism will play out to the best interest. It might take five years or 50 years for that complete cycle, but it also doesn't account for the thing that I think what's going to happen is I don't know that we're ever going to go for straight electric vehicles. I think there's going to be a leap where you're going to have fossil fuel vehicles because the price of oil is staying way, way lower than people anticipated it. And then you're going to go towards more ride sharing and bulk, uh, you know, people renting vehicles and time sharing vehicles and, and, and a totally different economy than what people expected. And so you're seeing the market act and you are correct. And I think that's why, um, you know, they're saying, Hey, let's go make the vehicles that people want. And, Trump is is definitely on the wrong side of this issue once again, where he's pushing, he's trying to keep the the heyday of the Chicago Bulls in place without accounting for the fact that there will be the Lakers and then there will be LeBron and whatever team pays him the most <laughs> to try to win a championship at some point. There's gonna be a natural evolution. I just want to say I'm 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 very impressed. You found a way to work that in so seamlessly. The Chicago Bulls reference. Uh, That's what I did. That's what I did. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, 
I mean, one of the other problems, and this just goes to show why government central planning doesn't work, is that you know you go back to 2007 when we saw sort of the tail end of the boom under George W. Bush. Gas prices were what four dollars a gallon. It's over four dollars a gallon, and everyone thought, "Way up there, this is it." Like here it is. Like I mean, I remember people saying we we're never going to see oil under hundred dollars a barrel. And then what happened? Well, the economy collapsed, and then yeah, oil prices started to tumble globally. And then we saw the absolute just revolution in the energy industry with oil shale and natural gas, and all of a sudden, America became the largest exporter of energy. And because of it, we're, I mean, some people have said we might never, we might never see a hundred dollars a barrel again, because it's never going to get that high because uh, with all this new technology, it's available. We've extended the shelf life of oil. And so no one could have anticipated that 10 years ago, that we'd be in a situation where one America would be the largest energy exporter and we'd be so far away from hundred dollars a barrel. So what happened was, is you're right. I mean, so GM, we bail out GM. And we sort of incentivized, because that's what the Obama administration did, them building these smaller cars, and the market just disappeared. It just over, not overnight, but it just disappeared and dried up because no one wanted those cars anymore. The only reason they wanted them was because of how, how uh, high gas prices were. And so when the gas prices fell, there wasn't any marketplace anymore. And so here GM had spent all this money and all these plants building a car that no one wants anymore. And so it just goes, to, once again, let the market decide. What would have happened at the, I mean, everyone acts like the government saved GM. I mean, GM would not have gone under. I mean, what would happen? They would have restructured or somebody would have bought them for pennies on the dollar, maybe 10 cents on the dollar. And all those people would have gone back to work and the plants would have been reopened. They'd be making new cars, something else. But this idea that they're just going to shutter this plant and everything, there's no way. I mean, they, they have a good infrastructure over there. Somebody would have bought them out. And that's the way the market usually works. But instead, the government got involved. We lost a bunch of money on it. And uh, now we're making cars that no one wants to buy. And now they're still correcting those mistakes. And let's- yeah, and- And let me add one more point to that before we move on, is that people need to realize this is also an industry problem. You can't look at GM and the plant and and a couple of vehicles without looking at Daimler Chrysler and how they've had to now Fiat Chrysler, how they've had to shift around and change their plan constantly. And every week in the news, it's can Ford make a profitable vehicle? I mean, they were the only company to not get bailed out. And year after year, their stock keeps just dropping and dropping and dropping because they can't make a car and make money. So I think people need to keep it, you know, it, it's not always indicative of a broader issue. It can just be as simple as the car industry has got to to reform itself. Well, and it's also a realization that the car industry is changing. I mean, there's one thing Americans are good at. We're good at making trucks. We're good at making SUVs. We're not so good at making sedans and sports cars and luxury vehicles, which we're getting blown out of the water on. You know what? Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we don't make those cars anymore, but we live in this world and people like Donald Trump, um, you know, and I'm, I don't, I don't mean to pick on Trump, but he's a very good representation of a lot of people who it's like once they're, um, you know, once they're sold on an issue, they never change their mind. And people want GM to continue making cars they've made for a long time and continue making sports cars, continue making all these things. Maybe they shouldn't do that. Maybe we leave that to uh, or, or, or maybe we we create a, a more separation there. So let's say GM 
only makes trucks and then Chevy only makes sports cars. And instead of them both making trucks, Chevy just makes sports cars like the, you know, Corvette and the Camaro. And then, you know, GM just makes trucks. And when they stop those duplicative, you know, product in a lot of cases is somewhat similar. Maybe that's beneficial. Maybe there's just, there's so many options out there and everyone thinks that everyone's got to keep doing exactly what they're doing. And the reality is, is that this economy is changing and everything else is changing. And so a lot of these companies have to change too. And there's still sort of this mindset that, well, GM's always done like this. Well, maybe they're, maybe they're not anymore. And it's okay. It's okay to move on. And a lot of people get very nostalgic and I think it, it, it's not such a good thing, but Speaking of moving on, it looks like if you look at what happened in 2018, uh, that would give, be a good indicator. But it looks like in 2020, North Carolina will once again be a swing state. A new poll out from Civitas shows how delicate the GOP's winning coalition truly is. When asked recently who they would support in 2020, 35% of respondents said Trump, regardless of the opponent. said Democrat, no matter who it is. So right there, it's about 50-50. However, here's the kicker. 21% said it depends on who the Democrat nominee is, and 8% were unsure or refused to answer. So Kevin, a new Gallup poll also out today shows Donald Trump's approval rating has dropped back down to 38%. Disapproval new time high, 60%, these 12 points underwater. If the Democrats pick a blue dog, middle of the road Democrat, I think the GOP is going to be in a lot of trouble. Thoughts? Um, well, I don't think that they are, are capable of picking a blue dog moderate. I don't think that there's enough people left that vote in the Democratic primaries that would pick someone. I mean, you've seen that with, I mean, even the House members that won here in North Carolina. I mean, Rachel Hunt is probably a little bit more moderate, but probably more liberal than her father. Um, and then you have um, the representative I worked for was beat by a, a pretty far left college professor from App State. Um, I don't see a lot of moderate in the party. I don't think they're beating us on middle ground. I think that we keep seeing this teetering back and forth where you had the Tea Party go right for a few years. And now you've got the left going back further left. I, I just I don't see the middle ground. So I think it would be interesting to see where it goes. Now, what I will say is that I don't think it has to be someone moderate to beat Trump, because I think anybody who has any sort of appeal will probably beat Trump, because a lot of people don't take into account how much of the anti-Hillary vote got Trump elected. And so I, that that's where I would go with that conversation. No, I, mean, I, I think you're 100 percent correct. Uh, there's you know two schools of thought on 2016. And one school of thought is that only Donald Trump could have beat Hillary Clinton in the Clinton machine. And the other school of, shot, uh, school of thought is anyone could have beaten Hillary Clinton because of how unpopular she is. And I tend to agree more with the latter that it didn't matter who the Republicans put up, we were going to beat Hillary Clinton. Um, she was, and I don't think maybe this was that well known by Democrats, but as it went on and on to see how much people just dislike her. And due to the fact that I think there was like a 1 million vote discrepancy between this year's midterm and the 2016 presidential election. And that's like, ins- I mean, for Democrats, De- Republicans, very different, but I mean, that's like insane. I mean, that, that just goes to show you how unenthusiastic people were about Hillary Clinton. 
And, you know, there's this idea that, oh, my gosh, only Donald Trump could have beaten Hillary Clinton. And I think we're going to be in for a um, sort of rude awakening, uh, or at least a lot of Trump supporters are, if who, depending on who the Democrats put up. Now, if they put up someone that's just as unlikable and unrelatable as Hillary Clinton, and I don't know who that would be, like, I don't know, if Nancy Pelosi ran or something like that, you could replicate that and Trump could have a shot. But it looks like if the, I mean, I, I think there is. You know, to some extent, I think they would guarantee it with a blue dog. But even if they put up someone that's somewhat far left, like Barack Obama, but is appealing that people like, um, I think the GOP is going to be in a lot of trouble. I agree. That's why I'm thinking in my head if they go with someone like Robert Francis O'Rourke, um, who <laughs> you mean Beto. Yes. Now that that's so on election night, the reason I keep saying this and I keep meaning to mention it is as I was watching the election night coverage, I was flipping between all the channels and I landed on Fox News for a few minutes and Carl Rove was on there. And I forgot how much I just doggone like him. And he kept calling him Robert Francis. I said, I'm stealing that. I am so stealing that. Um, well, that's his but name. Yeah, you're right. That's his, I mean, that's that's well, that's his name in Congress. That's how he first ran. This is the first time he ever ran his beta. <laughs> And it's, uh, I, I think it's funny anytime you can, you can, uh, you can pin someone, uh, well, oh, oh, take, a, take a little of their thunder away from their, their cool what? nickname with the kids. Yeah, but what to me is so funny about that race is you had Robert Francis O'Rourke, a rich white kid who married an even richer white woman. <laughs> I mean, like the guy's like, oh, you know, so talk about upward mobility, uh, you know, super rich, spoiled, privileged, all of that runs his Beto O'Rourke to try and like trick people into thinking that he's like, has some like maybe, you know, bad upbringing or I don't know what. Whatever. And then you got Ted Cruz, who's, you know, second generation immigrant uh, who worked his butt off, truly is like the American dream. And instead of running as Rafael Cruz, he runs as Ted Cruz. And so you have Beto, like the whitest guy in the world, pretending to be Hispanic. And then you have a Hispanic, not pretending to be white, but clearly changing his name to something more appealing, like Ted, which is like more American. And so it was just so funny that they both like, it's like Freaky Friday on like election night. Like, like they, it's like you had the white guy pretending to be Hispanic and the Hispanic guy pretending to be white. It was just, it was very bizarre. That Texas rate was very bizarre. Yeah, no, it is very bizarre. And I'm really surprised that, um, that it was as close as it, as the, uh, the results were. And I think that that is the kind of thing that, Republicans need to be concerned about. And um, I don't know if I mentioned it on here. I know I've posted on Twitter in a couple of places that um, my wife and I have been watching the Clinton affair on A&E and we finally finished it last night. It's a six part mini series documentary where um, that, that's kind of grouped together in two, uh, two, two or three, two hour blocks. And it's amazing to go back in time and look at uh, you know, James Carville and Stephanopoulos and this whole Clinton team and how they've gotten to where they are now, how you also have uh, Clinton still out there campaigning for and no one cares about all of the things that he he admitted to doing. You know, you talk about the, the Kavanaugh uh, hearings and how he may have groped someone at high school and you have Clinton lying under oath, finally admitting what he did while in the Oval Office and no one said a peep. But the thing I wanted to get to is that it reminded me of how the Republicans in the 90s fought. They put up a fight against the left. They were determined to do what they could to take the House, to control the agenda. I mean, we saw what the Republican Congress did. I mean, they were very effective in their 100-day plan. 
And so I'm wondering if the Republicans today are going to get any of that fire back, because I feel like I feel like it's been very reactionary, at least at the state level. You talk about the uh, the Civitas poll and how North Carolina is really a toss up. But should it be? And could Republicans try a little harder and put together a plan to not just give up ground in a state that has all of the makings of of a solid Republican state because of what has been done, the accomplishments of tax reform, the economy, taking care of the, the fiscal the situation of the state. So I, I just wonder if if they will just get up off the couch and do something about it. Well, there's a great new book out by Steve Kranacki um, over at MSNBC where he actually argues that a lot of the root of the Republican Party today was forged under Gingrich. And you're right about Gingrich in the 100 days and being successful with that. But then you have to remember the ending of Gingrich's term as speaker was very uh, controversial. You know, the impeachment process, which cost us which cost us seats in the midterm, which it shouldn't have the overreaching, you know, with the whole impeachment thing, uh, you know, his affair, you know, him having to leave. I mean, like so. Gingrich started, I think you're correct, and he had this idea, this plan, but then somewhere he just got rerouted and diverted from that and ended up going down the more salacious route and all of a sudden did things to get attention. And and, and that's what Kornacki's book is about, is that, that that was sort of the foundation of where we are today with politics, where it became less about kind of like the inside baseball stuff and more about everything is an outrage and everything is horrible and so it's kind of funny that Gingrich, who I think, yeah, had this 100-day plan and then just completely diverted from it and could possibly be the root of a lot of the frivolous stuff that we talk about today. Uh, I haven't read the book yet, but that's what I've heard the premise is. Well, I'll read it and tell you how it is. How okay, thanks. I'm not I'm – not, I'll give me the cliff notes. I'm not going to – I got things to do, man. I don't have time to read books. I have I books talk. that I've read five chapters of. I just can't. <laughs> um, one last thing. I, so, the, so the last thing I wanted to talk about uh, today, Tyler, is that I think it's it's kind of on this similar train of thought where we're talking about ammunition that Republicans could use to better themselves and to to grow the party instead of continuing continuing to lose ground. And there was an article in the News and Observer yesterday that had the headline quote. In NC, nonprofits have become the backbone of disaster recovery. I almost had a heart attack, so I had to read it. In the piece, they talk about how nonprofits have really stepped up to provide relief where government assistance has fallen short in the recent disasters. Towards the end of the story, they even go as far as to say that nonprofits are often the first in and last out in these big uh, natural disaster situations. Wait. So you're telling me that compassionate people use their time and resources to help others in a more efficient way than government bureaucracy? That's just madness, I tell you. So, Tyler, each year Americans donate about $450 billion to charity. Could you imagine how much good that could be done if they did so without the $1.5 trillion in federal income taxes they pay every year? And this is like li- – libertarian utopia what we're talking about right now i mean i think there's a role for uh you know government and doing what it does and this you know kind of goes back to our early conversation about populism and and there's a there's a really good um uh what's the what's the the phrase welfare chauvinism which is the idea that only certain people should be because that's really what the debate has become now is in washington as everyone thinks like you have these like two main parties and they differ very you know greatly on this idea of, you know, 
Republicans want to cut entitlement and welfare spending. And the reality is that they don't. They just the, the Republicans have a different idea of where entitlement welfare money should go, and Democrats think the opposite. And that's really what sort of welfare chauvinism is. It's this idea of only certain people should be allowed to receive, you know, money from the government. But one of the ways that you solve this problem entirely is give it to the free market and let them take care of it because they're going to be far more uh, generous. They're also going to be far more likely to be uh, accountable. I mean, how many times have we heard about charities that are not tied into the government? Because we do hear about a lot of charities that have ties to the government and they're just, they're horribly run. Very little money actually goes to those that need it. But the ones where, you know, for example, there was this one, I can't remember what his name was, uh, but he was this billionaire and he, um, I think he actually ended up killing himself and he was super atheist. Like he didn't believe in religion at all, but he gave almost all of his money to faith-based charity organizations. And everyone thought it was so weird. And he said, well, it's because the majority of the money we give them goes to the people that need it. Like, you know, a lot of these charities you give money to, and it's like 50% of the dollar, if that actually go to the people that need it. And the reality is the free market keeps people accountable. When you ever hear about these scandals where they're not giving the money the way they're supposed to, it shuts down the charity. Every day there's a story about the government misusing money and yet they're still get money and they still abuse it. We swap some people out. We demote some people. We fire them and they get our pension. I mean, it doesn't change, but putting it in the hands of the free market, it's accountability. And it's also for them, for the most part, they spend the money better. Uh, they're more efficient with the money. And so not entirely, but yeah, I think a very large amount of we're already doing it now. And you're right. The, the more money that we can take out of the government's hands and put back in the free market into, into private charities, I think the better off we would be as a society. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's where I'm sitting on this. There is a great clip. You can find it on YouTube. And I originally saw it in a documentary on Netflix, I believe, about Bobby Kennedy. And uh, it was when he was running for Senate, I believe, in New York, he had gone into this very poor, poverty-stricken neighborhood in the original ghettos where the, you know, kind of the, the term originated. And he came out and he said, the war on poverty is not working. Throwing money at people is not solving the problem. They need industry. They need uh, the ability to lift themselves out of these situations. And now here we are. 40 years later, where you won't find anyone on the left side of the aisle that really talks about this, even though the, the, the golden child Bobby Kennedy was advocating for it. And so the question is, will we ever be able to sort of turn that paradigm of stop spending trillions of dollars? We talked about that a, an episode or two ago about how you know, entitlement spending is just continuing to balloon, but debts, you know, debt, debt service is going to outpace it within the next uh, several years. So we're going to have to, to, to change something because what we have is a trillion dollars a year going in to welfare spending, and it doesn't even come close to solving the problem. We then have to turn around and take another half a trillion out of our own pockets and charity and give it to different organizations that are making a better, um, that are making the situations better on the ground than these bloated bureaucracies are. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, – there's a story right now in North Carolina. We might talk about it next week where a woman was caught uh, – she was with the Wake County Register of Deeds, I think. Yes. And she embezzled yes. uh, what? $900,000 or something a crazy million. like that? Yeah, some, something it, close to it. 
And so now she's suing to get her pension back. <laughs> it's just like, you should be in prison. Okay. I don't even know. Maybe she did go to prison. I don't know. But it's like the fact that you would even be eligible. And the reality was, is that that is the way it works. I mean, down here in Wilmington, the uh, New Hanover County uh, ABC director, Billy Williams, <laughs> stole money from taxpayers, got caught, was you know found guilty and got fired had to you know repay the money, but now he's still collecting $120,000 a year pension. That's insane that that's allowed to happen. And so it's – the government has so many problems. And I'm not saying the private sector doesn't have problems, but like I said, there's accountability and efficiency that doesn't exist in government. And that alone is why we should be going the private route instead of the public. I'm not saying we should get rid of government and the government shouldn't help. I mean, in examples, you know, I just I just witnessed it not too long ago with the hurricane. You need the government and the tools that they have at their disposal with regards to uh, the National Guard and you know the military and other you know, tools that they have that can help people. But when it comes to you know the aftermath and actually helping people and getting them the resources, private charities seem to do a lot better. I completely agree. I think that we should open up a charity tower, the Tavern Let's Voices Fund. And, um, that sounds like a scam, though. <laughs> it does. It sounded very seedy when I said it out loud. I didn't I know, mean it I that know, way. I know. What we should what you should have said is we're going to start our own government <laughs> and find a way. Because that's okay. Apparently, it's okay to rip people off when you're the government. But it's not okay to do it when you're private. So According to the – what was the uh, the group down in Fayetteville that the sovereign citizens that had the the charter of 1779 or something? We hereby establish Tavern Voices uh, Government Incorporated, LLC, nonprofit, 501c3. It's kind of weird because we only exist in cyberspace. So I don't know. Can we own property in cyberspace? Can we make claim to this that we're free of any rule? I guess you're already free of rules anyway in cyberspace. So I guess we're already there. We're good. That's the whole reason. It's the uh, it's the Wild West, my friend. It's um, you know, it's it's pirate territory. We just uh, we we pay for the space that we get. As long as I get to be Johnny Depp, I'm cool with being pirate territory. Yes, you would be probably the Johnny Depp. Anything else that we need to get to tonight, Tyler? Anything no. pressing on your mind coming up? Any big events? Um, anything exciting in your life? No, nothing. I'm I'm pretty boring. It's pre- I'm getting ready for Christmas. That's about it. 29 days. Say, 29 days. 29 days. That is uh that's that's pretty exciting. Well, how about we do this again next week and uh we'll we'll start a Christmas countdown. Maybe we can even uh get some you know permission to play our favorite Christmas song as a as an outro next week Ooh, or something. I like that. I like I'm I'm on board 100%. I'll put in a I'll put in a call and uh see what we can do. All right, dude. I'll see you next week. All right, man. See ya. <laughs>